Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 374. Today is June 5th, 2022. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. While the market, while it has been improving over the last couple weeks, it is still extremely volatile. And over the past couple months, the normal trend that had worked about buying the dips, that's out of favor now. And people instead are selling the rallies. Me personally, I'm just doing what I always do, which is to consistently look for opportunities and value. So I'm not trying to day trade this or run with the momentum or short anything. I'm simply hunkering down and riding out what I think is a correction of the excesses from the pandemic combined with the new fears of the Ukraine invasion all of which I believe is way over inflated hysteria, and that while this market isn't a correction, we are still in an expanding, growing economy, and the best place, in my opinion, to be is in stocks, and particularly in U.S. equities. That's a position that I held before the pandemic. It's a position I still hold now. Yeah, there are ups and downs, and if I could predict the future, I would get out at the top and get in at the bottom. But I can't, and neither can anyone else. And so my approach over more than three decades of investing has been to try and actively trade the markets to avoid major long-term catastrophic losses. That's when you get out and you go to cash and you just hunker down and you totally sit out of the market for six months, maybe two years. That's the 2008 financial crisis type situation. I don't think that's what we're in right now. I don't think We've been in a situation like that since 2008, and that's even despite the fact that I was concerned back, oh, probably from the peak that we saw in 2013 through the better early part of 2016. There was those two or two and a half years in there that I was very concerned that markets were getting way too overheated and we could be headed to another financial crisis. But my thinking on all that changed in 2016 for a number of reasons the most powerful of which being the huge advancements that were made, particularly by the United States, in expanding accessible fossil fuel reservoirs. And so I'm talking about the shale oil revolution, more accurately, horizontal drilling, all the automation and big data that goes along with that, and specifically not only with the oil production, but even more importantly, the natural gas that was clearly a tell at the time that the United States, although maybe never going to be energy independent, it had switched and reversed a trend that had been in place for more than the previous 40 years. When you combine that with all the advances made in renewable energy, that put the United States in a position where it not only had access to a very abundant energy resource, but also in a power position as an energy low-cost producer. That set into effect a number of trends, and when you combine that with demographics and automation, long-term, I believe then, I still believe now, that that has set the United States, and more broadly speaking, North America, into a growing, expanding economy that's got a long runway ahead of it. Certainly, I believe, 10, 20, 30 years out, a generation out, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be bumps along the road. That doesn't mean that we won't have a financial crisis in the meantime, but overall, all these little speed bumps like pandemics or Fed tightening or worries about inflation, 
up to this point, I felt they've all been overblown because the underlying fundamental of abundant, relatively inexpensive energy being produced in the United States means that the economy can not only continue to expand and grow, but a lot of the industries that had been previously hollowed out and sent primarily to Asia would now be returning back to the United States. And that's what you've seen taking place over the last, you know, more than a decade. Go look at the petrochemical industry and infrastructure that's been put along the shores of the Gulf Coast states in the past, you know, decade or so. That's the early stages of the supply chain and supply networks coming back to the United States. I felt so strongly about these trends that that's why I wrote a book back in 2016. It didn't get published till 2017, but I wrote a book in 2016 entitled The Robots Are Coming, A Human Survival Guide to Profiting in the Age of Automation. The general thesis of that book is that there are these trends in place, mostly favored by automation and robotics and big data computing. Those trends are creating the reality of less expensive and more abundant energy and less expensive and more abundant healthcare and less expensive and more productive automation and robotics to help mitigate the long-term problems of the decline in birth rates that we're seeing across the globe. The premise of that book is if you think in certain ways, namely thinking like a saver instead of a consumer or thinking like an investor instead of a speculator, that you can build wealth and not only build wealth, but profit more in the coming years than you ever could in the history of humanity. I believe that when I wrote the book, I believe it even more strongly today. Things like COVID and even the Ukraine invasion that we're seeing right now, these events are causing the trends that were already in place to happen even more rapidly. That's why I'm very optimistic about the future, Ah, but I digress. That's not what I intended to talk about in this episode, although ultimately it is. Right now, despite the fact that the market's in a correction from the excesses of the pandemic and due to the very uncertain outcomes of the Ukraine war, we're seeing a lot of volatility, we're seeing a lot of sell-offs, bad stocks are obviously going down, they need to go down, that's part of the correction, that's part of the excess from the pandemic. So those are the meme stocks, the overhyped stay-at-home stocks the valueless and the worthless get-rich-quick type stocks and investments and douche coins and NFTs. All that has to be washed out. But what you have to remember with market corrections is that when the fear steps in and the greed moves back, good stocks go down along with bad stocks. And so, yes, you take a hit to your immediate portfolio if you're holding on to it, but that allows you to readjust to trim your portfolio just like you'd prune and nurture your garden and to take those capital reserves along with any additional capital that you've built up. And that's why I talk about that three-leg stool of building wealth is, is learning how to earn, learning how to save, and learning how to invest. You have to continually save a portion of your income and set it aside so that when these downturns happen, you're not only pruning your positions, so that you can buy into better opportunities, but you're taking your available cash from savings and adding to those new positions. That's what I did in 2020 when the pandemic hit. I wasn't concerned or worried about it. I saw it as an opportunity. Yeah, sure, my stocks were down 30 plus percent in March of 2020, but I didn't panic. I didn't freak out and dump all my stock. I did trim my positions. I took some profits in things that I thought were overextended. 
I sold other losing positions that I thought were never going to make their money back up, but I held core positions, specifically things like banks and energy stocks. And I'll tell you, it's those energy stocks that I held onto back then and that I've added to since that people told me I was crazy for investing in, you know, because of ESG and alternative energies and the fact that fossil fuels, well, you know, they're just fossils. That's old boomer stuff. The future is not in petroleum. Yeah, well, maybe the future isn't, but right now, those same energy stocks that I held on to and have added to over the last couple years, they are the best performing asset class. I didn't get rid of them back when everybody hated them, even though they totally tanked. I held on to them because they had value. And I believe the market was mispricing that value. Just like I think that the overall fears right now in the market are misplaced. <laughs> but I digress again. The bottom line on this is that I didn't panic in 2020 or at any point during the pandemic, regardless of what the headlines said, and I hunkered down on what I thought was fundamentally valuable. That's where I held my core positions, things like the energy and the financial stocks. And as the year of 2020 went on, I migrated into what I felt were reopening stocks, a reopening trade. To this day, I've still held most of those positions. Yeah, a lot of them are down, but a lot of them are also up. And likewise, I'm not going to panic when things get lower than I think they should be. Yeah, I think we should be in a correction to get rid of the excesses from the pandemic. But I think that the fears that have been added onto that from the Ukraine invasion have way overdone things. And so the 10 or maybe 15% correction that I would have anticipated has turned into a 15 to 30% correction depending upon you know, which indices you're looking at. And if you're in the world of cryptocurrency, well, really the best case scenario there is being down, what, over 55, 57% in Bitcoin. And then all the worthless NFTs have crashed even harder than that. And incidentally, everything is down. Bonds are down. Precious metals are down. That's what happens during a correction. But a down market and a sell-off in a correction doesn't mean we're headed for lower lows or an economic crisis. It just means that things are being corrected and repriced and those excesses are getting absorbed by the market and new leadership and new quality and new valuation are presenting opportunities to go on to ultimate all-time record highs as those areas of the economy continue to grow and recover. Ah, but I digress. Hey, the emphasis of today's podcast was to focus on what I think is an opportunity in the fact that investor sentiment is so negative. And we have negative investor sentiment because all the fears over the last, you know, more than a year are being conflated rather than being looked at individually and separately. And what I mean by that is that the people that are just wetting to bed panicked right now, the majority of them were the same people that were panicked eight months ago. And for that matter, you know, eight months before that and eight months before that. There are people that are permanently negative, right? You call them perma bears. They're the economy as half empty crowd. They always see negative things happening. And ultimately, they're always wrong because the economy always expands and grows because markets adjust and people adapt. There's always reason to be negative. That's why on my birthday, on March 22nd, I put out a parody humorous episode that a lot of people took seriously. I was mocking the good old days because there never were good old days. There's always reason to be concerned about the times you're living in 
But the fact of the matter is, through the history of humanity, we overcome those problems. Well, the winners do. The losers don't, and that's why they're losers. And right now, we have a lot of losing attitude that's created fear by conflating all these negative things and wrapping it up into the economy is headed downward because inflation is so great that the Federal Reserve is going to have to just jack interest rates up to infinity to crush consumer demand to save the economy. In my opinion, that is simply not the case. First off, I'm talking about a conflation of fears because right now, the biggest fear and uncertainty affecting the market is the Ukraine situation. That's what's driving the imminent and the immediate high inflation right now in things like energy and agriculture. And as I mentioned previously, that's really bad for a lot of parts of the world. But in other aspects, that can be very much mitigated for the United States, if not very beneficial to the United States. Because the United States is a dominant producer of those type products, has more than enough for our domestic market, and can actually even export if we choose to. You combine that with our superiority in military weaponry and military intelligence, and again, the unfortunate negative aspects of the Ukraine war can actually be played to America's strengths. Look around the globe right now. Okay, coming out of the pandemic and muddling through a quagmire with the Ukraine war, what countries are being benefited and what countries are being penalized? This is certainly bad for Europe, and that's Europe broadly speaking. Both very developed countries like Germany are very much likely headed to recession if they can't meet the energy demands that have come out of Russia. And even countries like Russia have had their credibility and their superiority diminished through this event, not improved. And the Asians aren't any better off. China is certainly not faring well, not only through what's going on with Ukraine, but also with the way they're still stumbling through lockdowns and handling the pandemic. And as you heard me talk about in the past, I don't think that's a temporary situation. I think that's a long-term impact of the trends that are going on globally around the issues that we always talk about, demographics and automation. And the fact that the United States is favored in terms of natural resources and the ability to use automation and big data and the Internet of Things and all the efficiencies of technology combined with our rich energy sources to not only be able to compete better with China, but in a lot of ways to substitute and replace and backfill all the manufacturing and the supply chains that have left North America over the last 30 or more years. That's good news for the United States and North America. That's bad news specifically for countries like China. And that's playing out. It's been playing out now for years. Ah, but I digress. The clear and present danger right now is Ukraine. Let's put that aside for a minute. Let's focus on the conflation of all these fears that are carried over from the pandemic. Because again, the bad news bears today that are the same bad news bears eight months ago, they're taking those fears from eight months ago and piling them on to the Ukraine uncertainty. But those fears from eight months ago, for the most part, they've dissipated. Outside of China's problems with you know, reoccurring COVID and lockdowns over there, outside of that, and specifically in the United States and for the most of the developed world, almost every COVID pandemic-related hangover or after effect has been dissipated except 
for the labor shortage. So yes, labor, particularly in the United States, that remains a concern, that remains an area of inflation. That is a carryover from the pandemic. That's occurred because more older people left the workforce ahead of when they were projected to leave. And that was combined with the fact that our borders were pretty much locked up and shut down for two years. And so immigrant labor, which normally floods into the country, was either stopped or occurred at a trickle. And as a result, immigrant U.S. labor, and this is both on the high end and the low end. So, you know, PhDs and doctors coming in from India to work either in medicine or the high-tech sector, as well as low-skilled day laborers, farm migrant workers, lower-skilled construction workers that would normally be coming in from places like Central America, that labor resource is short by at least 2 million. So you add that into all the older people, and I'm talking the 50, the 55 pluses that left the workforce and either aren't coming back or haven't yet come back, that's left the United States with a very overheated jobs market because we don't have enough workers to fill all the positions. That will get resolved because of the mega trend of automation and technology improvements. Again, another trend that's just being pulled forward faster than it otherwise would have. And it will also get resolved from changes in policy. And that's really one of the items I want to focus on in this episode if I would just stop digressing. You see, it's all about policy. And again, this is a reoccurring theme that I've talked about over the years, about how I get worried from an economic standpoint when there are fundamental or existential reasons to be worried. Prior to the shale oil revolution, when it looked like the United States every year, year after year, was producing less and less energy, that was a concern. And that was a problem that was happening since the early 1970s. That's an existential threat because each year we had less and less fossil fuels and at the same time there weren't enough technological advances in alternative energies to not only make up for that but even to you know, mitigate some of the fossil fuel shortfalls. And so from the 1970s until well into the 2000s, the United States had to consistently rely on energy sources outside the United States. And that was an existential threat that also had many policy issues interjected into it, which is why we got into all the quagmires and problems with Middle East wars over the last 20 plus years. Those existential fundamental facts are indeed threats to the health of the economy. So a lack of natural resources, a lack of human talent, a lack of the things that are needed to support and drive an expanding and growing economy. Those are fundamental and existential issues that must be dealt with on a macro level with an economy as well as on a micro level at individual companies. That's why before I ever buy any company stock, before I start thinking about the charts or the trends or momentum or any other thing that may be affecting that stock, the first thing I always look at are the fundamentals. Is that company making money? Does that company have cash on the books? Does that company have a sound, fundamental, long-term business plan? I'm looking at those fundamentals on individual companies the same way I would be looking at fundamentals on the overall economy. I believe that's the core of any long-term solid investment strategy. 
And then from there, you build on and you do look at the charts and you look at the trends and you look at the technicals and all the other fear and greed indicators. But you have to start with fundamentals. I'm digressing again. The point is that any of the fundamental issues that came up during the pandemic and even the excess greed hysteria that resulted in bubbles across many asset classes over the last two years, all those things have either been dealt with or are being dealt with right now. Again, other than what I mentioned with the employment sector. But that will work itself out. It'll work itself out because of the fact of automation and robotics, and it'll also work itself out in terms of policy. Now, we're in a midterm election cycle. There's a lot of protect our jobs at home right now. And so I don't expect anything on the policy issue to be resolved between now and November. But that will eventually be worked out. And that 2 million deficit that we have in immigrant labor, it will get resolved. And again, in addition to that, more importantly, is the advances that we're making in automation and productivity to circumvent that anyways. And speaking of which, let's digress a little bit here real quickly. If you don't think that we'll make up that 2 million plus immigrant gap that we have right now, well, let me give you an example of how overnight some policy decisions could change and voters could become in support of bringing in a whole lot more immigrants to this country than normally what we've wanted to do over the last 10 or more years. What's happening in Ukraine right now? There are over 7 million refugees that have left Ukraine, wouldn't it be humanitarian? Wouldn't it be patriotic? Wouldn't it be building on American-European heritage to bring in a whole lot of those Ukrainians and any other Central Europeans, by the way, that are skilled, that want to come to America and get out of war-torn Eastern and Central Europe? Couldn't that be spun in such a way that Republicans and Democrats, bipartisans, come together and bring in half a million, a million, five million European immigrants? I think it could happen. But again, I digress. So let's get back to the conflation of all these fears. Now, I know some of you are never going to agree with me about this conflation of fears and you just see problems everywhere. But stop looking at today's problems and let's, again, go back six, eight months ago. Do you remember how we weren't going to have a Christmas because all the shelves were going to be empty? Because all these ships were stacked up outside of the port of Los Angeles, you know, going all the way back to the first island chain of China. We couldn't get any products into the country. It was going to ruin Christmas. It was going to crush the economy and specifically first quarter profits. Well, how'd that all work out? I'll tell you how it worked out. Just recently, Target and Walmart did take a hit to their earnings. And they didn't take a hit to their earnings because they didn't have enough products to sell. They took a hit to their earnings because they had too much inventory. Oh, I know you're saying, oh, too much inventory because consumers can't buy stuff because they're spending all their money on food and energy. No, the profits we're talking about for the most part took place prior to these recent run-up in energy and food inflation. The problems that have hit these big retailers on their first quarter earnings was because they overstocked ahead of the fear of running out of products for Christmas. They overordered. The point is, is that those supply chain issues of bringing products in from China, they got resolved. They got resolved just like the Omicron breakout got resolved. Do you remember last December when I said that Omicron was nothing to worry about from an economic standpoint? 
I know I had to apologize because I hurt people's feelings, but what I said economically played out. Look at all the people that were panicked in December and in January, selling all their stocks because, oh my goodness, Omicron, this third or more wave of the pandemic, it was never going to end. The reopening trade wasn't going to happen. Everything was going to fall apart. First quarter corporate profits, primarily because of Omicron, were reduced down to 5%. I said at the time that these companies were sandbagging. Well, lo and behold, now that first quarter earnings have come out, do you know where they came in? Did they come in at that 5%? Did they come in lower than 5%? They came in at 10%. The fears of Omicron were totally overblown. Just like every fear over the last two years has been overblown. Do you remember two years ago, when the pandemic first broke out, no one was buying cars. No one was buying cars to the extent that I really didn't even need a new car, and I went out and bought one in April of 2020 because the dealerships were giving such good deals on cars to get them off their lots. Everybody else was hunkering down, worried about a big recession, worried about a big pandemic. I went out and bought a new car. And what happened a year later? A year later, all those lots that were packed and full of cars that the cars dealers couldn't get rid of, suddenly there's a shortage. We don't have enough semiconductor chips to build new cars. And a year ago, and over the last year, people were worried about that. Oh my goodness, inflation from new and used cars and durable good products. It's going through the roof. It's going to crush the consumer. So now that shortage of cars, guess what? It's being resolved slowly. Markets adjust. People adapt. People are always going to be worried about some shortage somewhere, and they always get resolved. There are people right now that are just petrified about a shortage in diesel fuel. Oh my goodness, you know, we're just three days away from all the grocery stores not having any food because the big trucks won't be able to get in because we're out of diesel fuel and we're out of diesel fuel additive. And there's going to be food riots. And yeah, and these are probably the same people that didn't go out and buy oil and refinery stocks two years ago. See, these are opportunities. They're not disadvantages. And they get resolved because markets adjust and people adapt. These shortages that we've seen over the last two years, and even the ones that are occurring now specifically because of the Ukraine situation, they're not existential. We're not seeing high oil and gasoline prices because there's no oil in the ground, or that there's no coal to be mined, or no copper. Or, you know, the high lumber prices, uh, it's not the fact that we're running out of timber or running out of trees. If we were running out of natural resources, I would be concerned. But the inflation that we're seeing isn't because we're running out of natural resources. It's because of the policy decisions that are being made by companies and by governments and by institutions and organizations. It's all these policy decisions that are hampering the production and the access to these resources. I think these issues will get resolved, just like they always get resolved in the past, because policies change as markets adjust and people adapt. One of the things that I wrote about in my book, The Robots Are Coming, and it's one of the things I got the most negative feedback was from my doctor friends when they read about how I talked about how technology would bring down healthcare costs just as it's brought down 
energy and oil costs. And that'll happen as a result of things like patients wearing individual monitors and, you know, things being done online and through the internet. And my doctor friends, a lot of them pushed back and said, that will never happen. You can't get reimbursed from insurance companies for doing medicine online. And there's all these state rules that, you know, prohibit you from practicing medicine across state lines and privacy rules about online handling of information and, and yada, yada, yada. All these things I heard in 2017 about how advancements in technology were not going to help lower the cost of medical care anytime in the future. Well, how much did all that change by one little virus, right? All of a sudden people are rushing out to buy Teladoc stock because all of a sudden you can do medical consultations on Zoom. Markets adjust, people adapt. The problems that we have, for the most part, are not existential. They're not fundamental. They're simply policy decisions that can easily be changed overnight. You don't believe me? Look at the war in Ukraine. Overnight, do you see how the perception has changed about NATO? Do you see countries like Sweden and Finland that have resisted and not only resisted, but been totally 100% opposed to joining NATO throughout the entire 60 years of the Cold War, they resisted joining NATO. And all of a sudden, one little special military operation have changed that, right? We're looking at Sweden with 200 years of neutrality, has a majority of their population that wants to join NATO. Policies can change overnight. Look at the Germans and their reliance on energy and specifically natural gas from the Russians. Over the last 15 years, that's been a bedrock with increasing and increasing dependence on bringing in energy from Russia. That's been a cornerstone of the German government and German industry's energy policies. Overnight, all of a sudden, they don't think that was maybe such a good idea. Markets adjust, people adapt. And speaking of Germany, look at the European political parties that are the most supportive of sending weapons into Ukraine. Well, by my accounts, the political party that I see that's backing that the strongest is the German Green Party. Now, that's really paradoxical because normally, and I say normally for the last you know history of their existence, the Green Party, specifically the Green Party of Germany, has been very much pacifist and specifically huge opponents of NATO. But not anymore. Markets adjust, people adapt. Okay, okay, John, but what about the Federal Reserve? They're raising interest rates. We're going to have an inverted yield curve. Consumers aren't going to be able to buy houses or get loans to get new cars. Again, these are policy decisions, just like I talked about uh, probably the end of 2018. I think it was October. I've talked about that episode before. Go back and listen to it. Where back then, everybody was worried about the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. It was going to crush the economy in 2019. Well, long before we ever got to the pandemic, the Federal Reserve stopped raising interest rates. The Federal Reserve doesn't want to kill the economy to fight inflation if they don't have to. And in this case, they don't have to because none of the inflation or virtually none of the inflation that we're seeing right now is something that the Federal Reserve can do anything about. Oil prices are high right now because we're not pumping enough oil. Food prices are high right now because we're not producing enough food. These are policy issues that will get resolved and worked out. The point is, is that 
the Federal Reserve raising interest rates isn't going to make any more corn or wheat or natural gas or oil. And you say, well, why is the Federal Reserve raising rates? Well, the Federal Reserve has to appear like they're doing something, right? It's just like the Congress. Something happens, they got to pass a law, got to do something about that. It's all political drama, smoke and mirrors. The Federal Reserve knows that the inflation that's occurring right now is nothing that they can do anything about. But they've got to play the game and talk about tightening up monetary policies because they are perceived as causing this current inflation as an overhang, as a carryover from the excesses of the pandemic. Again, the inflation now is coming from the uncertainties and the problems and the bottlenecks primarily of Ukraine. Everything else from the pandemic, other than labor shortages, either have worked themselves out or will shortly resolve themselves. The big flows of money that occurred during the pandemic have almost all dried up. And the Federal Reserve is only responsible for one of those issues. Right? The Federal Reserve printed a lot of money, and they did that to keep interest rates low so that the government could spend you know, something to the level of, I don't know, $7, 8000000000000 trillion over a period of, you know, 18 months. Yeah, that was hugely inflationary. But at the same time, have you looked at the price of gold? Right, lower now than it was in the peaks of 2011, more than a decade ago, and only for a very brief time, nominally, got above that peak from 2011. So inflationary terms, gold is still well below where it peaked more than a decade ago. And that's in spite of the government just dumping, you know, seven or more trillion dollars into the economy. Those inflationary effects from the overprinting by the Federal Reserve and the overspending by the government are pretty much gone at this point. There were two other impacts where a lot of money was created that no one's talking about. I've, I've mentioned them before and I've got criticized badly for one of them. And this is even on the early stages of the pandemic. I talked about the inheritance factor. You know, I mentioned that, yeah, on the one hand, the pandemic's bad, obviously, for humanity, but it could be a boom to the stock market and to consumers because of the transfer of wealth from the older generation that's dying to the younger generation that's inherit that inherits it. People unsubscribed from my podcast and sent me emails telling me how upset they were with me that I was so inhumane. But that remains a fact. Over the last couple years... We saw a huge, the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth that occurred over a 12 to 18 month period. The older people that had that money in reserve and were saving it for their old age and their retirement, they're not big consumers of anything other than health care. Once they died, they no longer needed that health care. That money was inherited by their children and their grandchildren, and the children and the grandchildren went out and spent it. They bought new cars, they bought houses, they bought vacation properties. That was a huge part of the excess money that flowed into the economy during the pandemic that had virtually nothing or absolutely nothing to do with government policies or the Federal Reserve. Well, that money's all dried up now. And then a third area, which again has gotten very little attention, if not any at all, and this is a spillover effect from the Fed's low interest rate policies, but it's not something you can directly blame on them. It's just a matter of consumer behavior. But by lowering interest rates 
and allowing literally millions of Americans to go in and refinance their mortgages and moving those down to three or lower. I mean, there's plenty of people out there that have mortgage rates under two and a half percent. They all refinanced in the last two years. And what did they do during that refinancing process? They took equity out of their homes. Because for many of them, this was the first time in over 10 years that they actually had any equity in their homes. So many homes had not gotten back to their pre-2006, you know, pre-housing crisis levels until we got into about 2018. And then that really escalated once the buying spree took off in late 2020. So people not only now have equity in their homes, but they can refinance and get a much significantly lower interest rate. And taking their 30-year, 5% mortgage, which now only had 25 years left on it, and trying to use the difference in payments and keep the payment the same or maybe even make the monthly payment a little higher and dropping that mortgage down to a 2.5% 15-year mortgage. How many people do you think did that? Not many. Those would be the wealth-steading people, the people that are interested in building long-term wealth through owning appreciating assets and being disciplined savers. Yeah, the well-standing people would have done that, but you know how many people there are like that? Very few. Instead, what did millions of people do over the last two years? They went out, they refinanced their mortgage, they cut their interest rate in half or maybe even more than half, but they refinanced and kept the terms at 30 years and took equity out of their house instead of keeping it in. And all that equity they took out, that money they took out, what'd they do with it? Just like the people that inherited money. They spent it. They bought new cars. They bought second homes. They bought RVs. That was another major source of all the consumption that took place over the last two years. Well, guess what? That refinancing asset grab, it's over now too. So that's why I say the carryovers from the pandemic, those excesses are mitigated or almost all gone. Oh, there's still some excesses out there. Last time I checked, GameStop was still trading in over $100. So not everything's totally come back down to earth. But we are seeing markets adjust and people adapt. And so if you're still negative, I know you're saying, but John, but John, what about Ukraine? What about those uncertainties? Well, as I've mentioned before, yes, there are problems. And this could escalate and become worse. But if it's been like almost every other war or skirmish or special military operation in the last almost 80 years, then it's going to get resolved and it's going to have limited to no impact on the U.S. economy. And in fact, as I've talked about before, I would make the argument that just like the United States is coming out of the pandemic stronger than it went into it, the United States is coming out of the Ukraine situation much stronger than before we went into it, both in terms of our global influence and the positive impact that these changes can have for the U.S. and the North American economy. The trends that have been in place are being pulled forward again by Ukraine, putting more emphasis on bringing back supply chains, on reshoring American manufacturing, on using our energy resources, both fossil fuel and renewables, here within our own borders to produce more food and to produce more products and to do it with technology and automation. I think that the future has never been brighter. And that's not a digression. That's the theme of this podcast and of my worldview and of the way I live my life. I have more money today than I did before the pandemic. 
And I had more money in 2020 than I had in 2018. And I had more money in 2018 than I had in 2016. And I had more money in 2016 than I had in 2014. Do you see where this is going? My wealth is not built on what I did yesterday or what I did last week. It's not even based on the present situation of the economy. My wealth is based on the cumulative compounding impact of wise investment decisions over more than three decades. You can always find reasons to be negative. You can always see storm clouds on the horizon. But the way you build wealth is to turn those problems into solutions rather than complaining about the current situation. And even with the correction we're seeing in the stock market right now, things are not bad. Yes, the market's pulled back more than I thought it would. I thought we'd see a 10 or 15% correction. But like I talked about before with the negative Nellies from eight months ago, go back to all the fear and the gloom and doom about the supply chain issues and all the things they were worried about eight months ago that never materialized. The market right now, even with the big correction that we've gone through, we're down maybe 5% from where we were eight months ago on the S&P 500, maybe 6%. And this is at a time when we do have major real uncertainty from the Ukraine. And we have unthinkable energy prices today than where we were at eight months ago, right? Eight months ago, people were not thinking that oil was going to be at $120 a barrel or even the high interest rate environment. I mean, there were people eight months ago that were predicting that once the 10-year treasury got to 3%, that, you know, we'd see a total collapse in the market, 30, 40 or more percent. Well, the 10-year treasury is hovering right around 3%. It's been higher than that in recent weeks. Where are we at today on the S&P 500? Maybe 6% lower than it was eight months ago when all the negative Nellies were worried about a big long-term bear market. Hey, I can't predict the future, but I see plenty of reason for optimism. Look at the overall relative performance of the small caps, of the mid caps, of discretionary stocks, of the financials, and even in the tech sector. You hear all in the news about how Oh, the tech sector has collapsed and Kathy Wood's ARC fund is down 60-some percent and Peloton stock is down over 80 percent and and Elon Musk is now worried about the economy and he's going to have a hiring freeze and lay people off and yada, 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 yada. Look at the tech sector, not from specifically the QQQs or the NASDAQ, but look at the tech sector on an equal weight basis. You can do that with an ETF like RYT, or look at it from an ETF uh, that are sometimes called select or quality tech sector. Okay, look at the performance of those ETFs relative to the NASDAQ or relative to the Qs, and specifically look at them over the last four weeks. You'll see that on a relative basis, they're doing quite well. They're well off their bottoms, and the trend is up. Even semis. Look at, look at the semiconductor industry. In fact, if I remember correctly, last time I screened it, that would have been yesterday, the semiconductor as a sector overall has been up nine of the last 12 weeks. And this has been during, what, the most brutal sell-off over the last 10 weeks that we've seen in more than two years at a time when tech stocks are getting killed, and yet semis are outperforming the general market nine of the last 12 weeks. It wouldn't be happening if we were headed into a bear market. Investor sentiment is too fearful right now, and it's because they've conflated all these pandemic fears into the Ukrainian uncertainty. 
I think it's unwarranted fear. I think this is a time to be holding and adding to good quality stocks, not selling them in panic. But hey, am I right or wrong? Who knows? Come back for future episodes. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.